Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So we said that everything kind of uh, from the next few weeks that we've been looking at, there's actually what I would describe as like six case studies in which Jesus is going to begin to unpack uh, what it means to have what he describes as a greater righteousness. And this is all from the passage where he says, I haven't come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. And then he says, unless your righteousness exceeds, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot even enter into the kingdom of God. That's a pretty heavy, lofty statement. But again, what Jesus is now doing is he's basically describing, he's unpacking for us in these six case studies, what does a quote-unquote greater righteousness actually look like? How does it... What shape or body does it actually take? Actually take, And this is really important for us to understand because, again, if we claim to follow Jesus, we have to take the words of Jesus, listen to them, understand them, or try to understand them, and then begin to live according to them. As challenging as they may be, as offensive as they may be, as contradictory to my thinking or conventional logic or wisdom might be, um, I, have to, I have to wrestle with them. And this is what we want to begin to try to do this morning. Um, so one other thing before we jump in, uh, actually two more things before we actually jump in. One of the things is, is this. I, I realize that within our group, our church community, we have lots of different types of people, especially on a Sunday morning. We have people here, I would venture to say that probably the majority here, for the most part, are people that claim to follow Jesus. So you would be somebody, for the most part, that would say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, I, I'm, I, I follow Jesus with my whole heart, and the claims, the words of Jesus are things that you have sought to bring into your heart, to follow, to live according to. And of course, there's going to be moments where it's challenging, but by and large, you have this desire to say, I want to begin to figure it out and follow the way of Jesus. Others of you may claim to follow Jesus, but at the same time, you're, you're wrestling with some of these things because... Uh, conventional logic or wisdom, which means the logic or the wisdom that is part and parcel of our world today, um, is uh, kind of like a cold front coming in and causing thunderstorms in your life of confusion, of like, how, what voice should I listen to? What voice should I follow? The voice of culture at large, or maybe even the voice of my inner heart, my soul, my deepest desires, my strong desires, or the voice of, of God. And how do I know which is the voice of God? And how do I know what is the voice of culture? And how do I know where's the voice of my own desires trying to convince me or direct me or guide me? But there also will be people even on Sunday gatherings that for the most part, you're, you're maybe not a Christian, but you are interested. You're, you're trying to make sense of who Jesus is, the, the, the ways of how to, how to follow Jesus, how to make sense of what he has claimed and what he's talking about. What I would suggest is that in this particular message, as well as the message is really this entire series, Jesus is talking to what we're told at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5. It says he's speaking to his disciples. Now, some Bible scholars would claim or think that he's talking to his 12 disciples. But we know it can't be his 12 disciples because he hasn't called them yet. That doesn't happen until Matthew chapter 10. So who are the disciples to whom he's referring to? These would be probably a general category of people that are interested in following Jesus. So what I would suggest to you is that uh, first and foremost, the people to whom Jesus is addressing, to whom I'm going to be speaking to, about this idea of an ethic. In this context, a sexual ethic. Um, it's, for the most part, addressed to those that would claim to be followers of Jesus. Um, but to those of you that might not be a Christian, or you're still in the process of thinking through this and making, trying to make sense of this, what I would suggest to you is you are absolutely more than welcome to eavesdrop. Though this teaching is not necessarily for you. The ethic, the moral, is not... And this is where sometimes Christians go wrong, in my opinion, in modern world. 
is there's a tendency from Christians to try to rope around, non-Christians, uh, a moral ethic. An ethic that has to do with the kingdom of God. And so what Christians oftentimes are guilty of doing is roping non-Christians into an ethic that has to do with God's kingdom in which they have not submitted yet to the kingdom. So what I would suggest to you, um, the ethic of sexuality, for the most part, uh, listen to it. Just think about it. But the most important thing for you to really consider is Jesus. That's the most important thing for you. So I would suggest for you, think about who Jesus is to you. Think about Jesus in terms of his lordship, his, his claim of life, his claim of goodness over your life. So begin to think more intently about who Jesus is to you. And then once you wrestle and you begin to think through that question of whether or not Jesus is truly the master of your life, then you can begin to look at and unpack the ethic of his kingdom. Does that make sense? So hopefully that makes sense as we move into this. So the other thing I really want to say as far as kind of a disclaimer, hopefully I got that slide up there as far as a uh, disclaimer. I'm going to talk a little bit about briefly marriage, divorce, uh, this disclaimer. So first of all, um, Jesus, as well as the New Testament writers, uh, they had a lot more to say on this subject of marriage and divorce than what's actually spoken in this particular passage I just read. Um, so there's a handful of passages up there you can look at that are all kind of unpacking this as well. Um, but what that means for us today is uh, we will not look at the subject in an in-depth way today. So hopefully that doesn't disappoint you. But again, we only have limited time. And what we're trying to focus on mainly is just the main uh, broad idea of what Jesus covers in this text. Again, like I said, there's other places in which Jesus addresses this more in depth. Um, if you want to talk, thirdly, you know, if you want to talk to someone further about this, meaning if you are someone that you know uh, who's going through a divorce, or you yourself are going through a divorce, or you yourself are going through a troubled marriage, and you're trying to make sense, you're asking these bigger questions, what does God want for me in my marriage, in my brokenness, in my painful relationships? How do I make sense of that? Is it legitimate for me to get divorced? Should I get divorced? Is the best thing for me? Um, we, we have uh, pastors and leaders uh, in our church that are skilled, that would love to help you wrestle through and walk through that as well. So please come come talk to me um, if you would like this and or some of the pastors or leaders that will be available at the end of the service for you to chat with and talk with. And we would be happy to help walk with you alongside through this really painful, difficult circumstance that you might be going through in your life. Um, then finally, the book resources. Next slide. Um, these are two really excellent resources I would highly recommend. Um, the first one, Jay Adams, uh, great, recommend. The second one, I've read this one a couple times. It's excellent. It's called Divorce and Remarriage and Church. They're actually both kind of the same, name the same thing for the most part. Um, but um, this second one is Biblical Solutions for Pastoral Realities. It is kind of written for a pastor, though it address, I think anybody can really read it at the same time. And it goes through a more in-depth, thorough uh, investigation throughout the Bible from you know Genesis to Revelation, trying to understand what is God's intent for marriage. Um, are there moments, are there occasions where divorce is allowed? What are those occasions? How do you wrestle through that? Hopefully these books would be some resources for you to think about. So there you go. That's a lot of um, disclaimer before we jump in. So with that being said, I want to jump right in and begin to take a look at a handful of things and we'll kind of wrap this up. So number one, I want to, first of all, for us to think about this, is that Every single one of us in this room right now, every one of us, without exception, we have a sex ethic. And here's what I mean. Every one of us has a way in which we think about sex and or sexuality. How we're wired, how we think about sex. Should we indulge in sex? What, to what degree do we indulge in sex? Do, can, is it possible? And again, these are, these are real life questions that 
you and at some point may have wrestled with, are wrestling with, will wrestle with, God bless you. But these are, we have a grid. That's what an ethic is. It's a grid. It's a lens through which we think about the subject of sex and sexuality. Now, I suggest to you is that this is not a blank, docile object in society at large. Um, I would suggest that there is there's one of the most loudest voices in all of society is the highly sexualized voice. It's literally uh, infiltrated. In fact, you might even use the word infected every aspect of society from media to Hollywood to politics to even churches in some cases. Um, it is it, I mean, there's literally uh, it is the, the most number one money making industry on the planet. You, you understand that, right? The porn industry is the number one money-making industry on the entire planet. So this, this has literally become a fine-tuned money-making machine. And it infects, it affects every bit of society. So I would suggest this, that if you have not carefully thought through what your sexual ethic is, you will inherit a sexual ethic. You, you follow? So not one person here... Even if for some reason you might be like, I haven't really thought about my sex ethic that much. You have already inherited one. It was, it was given to you. You didn't even know it. But every show that you ever watch, you know, where there's like teenagers hanging out, making out, having sex, friends with benefits, whatever it is, little hookups, um, that is shaped the way that you think about sex, sexuality. How you think about your own sexuality has, has, has you've inherited it from the culture at Large. So what I would suggest, as we begin to think about this, that this is, this is what Jesus comes on the scene and says, listen, you've heard it said. I think if we were to come into the world today and begin to say, he would say, you've heard it said. Here's what, you know, the Americana dream of sex and sexuality is, and you'd fill in the blank. It'd probably be something that has been deeply shaped by the 60s sexual revolution, which has taken full form today. So if you're wondering, how do we get here today? There's a revolution called the sexual revolution throughout the 60s that has really, quote unquote, liberated sexuality. But this is to some degree a pipe dream because there's been all sorts of studies even recently that have proven that people that have, quote unquote, lived into, pressed into a, quote unquote, liberated sexuality, meaning you have sex how often as you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, is actually not free. That there is a defilement that has actually accompanied the soul. In other words, what you have deeply desired has never been fully realized or satisfied no matter how much sex you actually get. In fact, the porn industry has promised to, to give us deep sensation, deep experience, deep excitement, and yet what they're discovering now is people that have become addicted to porn have actually become more desensitized to actually experiencing sex. So the whole thing's backfiring. So here's what I would suggest, is that Jesus comes on the scene and says, I have an ethic for sex. Here's what it is. You've heard it said. But here's what I say to you. So we want to think about this, especially if Jesus is our Lord and our King, it means that God actually cares about sex and our sexuality and how it's expressed, how it's used, how it's managed, how it's controlled, how it's even not used. He actually has a lot to say about this. So we want to think about this carefully. Now, we'll come, jump into this and we'll begin to make our way through it. So number one, I want to take a look at Jesus and popular teachings. I'll just make my words on this brief. Next slide. Uh, Jesus actually comes on the scene and says, you've heard it said, but here's what I say. 
um, he is making a reference to not only the Old Testament passage about this, but then he goes on to, uh, next slide, sorry. Um, he then begins to talk a little bit about uh, the common ideas and notions about this. But what I find fascinating is that Jesus is not really interested in what the popular teachers of his day have to say. What he is interested in is basically giving his own clarifying comments on human sexuality. So I think that's, again, an important thing to understand is that especially for you and I in our world, which sex is literally being crammed down our throat. Everywhere we look, it's being crammed down our throat. Jesus has something to say about it. It'd be important, it'd be wise, especially if we claim to be a follower of Jesus, to really understand what he has to say about this. So, again, Jesus is not so much interested as to what popular opinion is on really any subject. In this case, the subject happens to be sex. Last week, the subject was anger. Um, next week, we'll talk about oaths and meaning your word. Are you a person of your word or do you lie? Um, then he begins to talk about relationships and people whom we claim to love, maybe even people who we claim to hate. Um, but Jesus has something to say about this. Second thing we see is Jesus and the heart. Jesus then begins to unpack sort of this deeper trait. So if you want to think about how Jesus addresses this, he goes on to say, just listen to the words again. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. So the act of adultery was the act of actually breaking covenant with one to whom you have covenanted, meaning uh, you're in this relationship. And for God, relationships are important. So this is an important thing to think about. Hopefully your understanding as to who you think about God is that he's not just a distant, angry, grumpy landlord slash grandpa who lives in some sort of alternate universe that every once in a while pops in during a natural disaster. Hopefully you think about God in terms of the way Jesus puts God into terms. He's a relational God. He actually cares about fidelity. He actually cares about being a person of your word. He cares about relationships that you have between him as well as relationships on a horizontal level with, with other people, that we begin to see that he begins to talk about their, this idea of adultery. It's something that God says, don't commit adultery. But Jesus then takes it a whole other layer, deeper. He goes to the very core issue of the heart, and he begins to say, actually, adultery. So think about it this way. No one wakes up one day in an adulterous relationship in bed with their secretary or somebody else. That never happens. I mean, there's maybe occasions that that has happened. For the most part, the way that that happens is there's a cultivation of a heart that says, and it begins somewhere. What Jesus is saying is that 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 act of adultery happened as, as a long result of cultivating ideas and concepts. And he's going to use the word lust in one's heart. Because it was never stopped or quenched or uh, subverted, it became like weeds and it had overgrown the entire life. And so one day you wake up and this horrible act takes place. This act of defiance, this act of breaking trust and confidence just simply happens as a result of a long cultivation of something that Jesus is going to address. So it's important to think about how the root of this begins to bear forth the fruit. So again, let me want to put it this way. God is not, he, yes, he's interested in the fruit. But he's more interested in the root that produced the fruit. Does that, does that make sense? So if you want to think of it this way, a lot of times there's a tendency to think about Christianity in the context or in the terms of God cares about behavior modification. Christianity, let me put it this way, try to say this as carefully as I can. God is not concerned about behavioral modification or about you, quote unquote, getting religion. 
I don't even know where that came from. Let's get some religion, like I, I, old-time religion. I don't even know what that means. But, but God does not care about you modifying your behavior. What he really cares about is you having a heart that's reoriented towards him. Because once your heart is reoriented towards him as king, then every other aspect of your life will fall into suit. Is it possible, let me ask you this, is it possible to have behavior that looks really clean, very sanitized, very, maybe even quote-unquote, Christian, and yet be completely far from God? Is that possible? Of course it's possible. We call that, we have a word for that, we call that religion, right? That's exactly what religion is, or religious people. Religious people are those, outwardly they look really strong and really healthy and really amazing and everything is in order and tidy in their life and sanitized but perhaps inwardly they're filled with judgment and arrogance and pride and what jesus wants to do is completely renovate your heart and here's what he does he begins to tackle the root cause of all this as he goes to the heart so we begin to see that jesus addresses this uh this means that jesus really ultimately he wants to be the right full place in our lives, the right authority that has the open opportunity to bring question and challenge and maybe even to some degree contradict us on a very core level and wrestle through that. So I would suggest that if Jesus truly is the king of your life, there will be deep challenges that you will face in wrestling through what it means to live under the reign of this king who doesn't just have ideas or opinions as to how our life should live, but more importantly, all of that is motiva- motivated by a deep love that he has for you. He loves you, cares for you. This is what motivates all this. So, one of the other things I'll say about this is that many of the quote-unquote good things in the Bible, uh, that the Bible is filled with, like good things, really good things, are actually what I would describe as complex goods. Meaning, they're good things, but they're good things that can also become really bad things. So, for example, sex. Sex is a really good thing. In fact, God even says so. It's a really good thing. Do you know that there's an actual book in the entire Bible that's just devoted to erotic relationship between a husband and wife? You know that? It's called Song of Solomon. That's shocking for a lot of people and throughout history, Christian history that, that has been so shocking that they've actually had to kind of rebrand it, recast it as, well, it's a metaphorical book about God's love for Israel. Maybe, but really... I think in some ways it's reducing the reality. It is the book of love. It's kind of like ancient erotica. And it really is. It's, and I don't mean that in any type of a, a diminutive type of a way. It's a book about deep, deep love between a man and his wife. And it's highly sensual, highly sexualized. And God says, this is part of my corpus, my, my word. Because God actually looks at sex. And sexuality says it's good, but sex and sexuality could also, uh, throughout the Bible, is defined or given a metaphor. It's like fire. That fire in its right place can actually bring warmth and life and goodness. I mean, especially on a cold winter day when everyone's gathered around a warm fire, sipping hot chocolate and doing whatever they do around a fire. Uh, but if that fire jumps out, it could burn you and your polyester shirt and cause great damage and problems throughout not only your house, but perhaps the neighborhood at large. And that's exactly what sex is like. Sex, in the bounds that God defined it, created for it to be between one man and one woman throughout the rest of their life, becomes this constant, continual, covenantal relationship, reimagining the marital forefront, bringing life 
constantly ongoing. It's like a covenant vow renewal over and over and over again for as long as the two shall live. Or sex can become cheapened and reduced to nothing more than an act of two bodies. Totally independent of soul and emotion where it's nothing more than a casual, mechanical act. And at some point, over time, that becomes dehumanizing. And if you've ever been involved in that cycle, you know the pain of that ultimately brings because you have given yourself in your entirety, physically, to someone else, and they basically said, all I want is your body, I don't want your soul. That's painful. Some of you have felt that, and you wear that pain. So, that being said, as we jump in, Jesus talks to us. If you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you commit adultery in your heart. So, go through this real quickly. What is lust? Here's a couple of ways to think about it. Lust is a meditative desire for something that's prohibited. Meditative, I have a couple of definitions up here that I just kind of created. A meditative desire for something that's prohibited. Think about it. Meditation, thinking, over, playing over and over and over again. Which, which, by the way, that's exactly what porn is. Porn is a, a visual meditation that we watch. And then it injects, it sticks a movie in our head that we then play that movie over and over and over again. That, that's meditation. That's chewing on something. It's thinking about something over and over and over again. Uh, another way is a staring at another person. Repl- uh, then you can think of it this way. Replaying that movie within your imagination with the intent of fueling sexual de- desire. How are we doing? You guys all right? Good. So, with this intent of fueling sexual desire, that's what lust is. And here's what Jesus says. If you have this in your heart, and this is what is on repeat, playing over and over and over again, then you're in a really, really dangerous spot. This is not something Jesus would say to be taken lightly. This is not something to say, this is just you exploring your sexuality. This is something to which Jesus would say, this is the red flashing light on your dashboard that you cannot ignore because, he goes on to say, it, it, it will lead you to a place of destruction if you don't catch it. If you are consumed by it and controlled by it, it will bring about destruction. Lust, I like to think of it this way, another metaphor, is lust is like a drunk driver in the driver's seat, in, in your passenger, going off for a ride. Uh, will you make it home safely? You never know. You might get in a car accident. It's a drunk driver. It's not thinking clearly. It can't think clearly. It's literally out of control. You may get home safe, meaning you might have private lust in your heart and get away with it for quite some time. But at some point, the effects, the consequences, the reality of what lust does in our heart, this fire will then begin to erode and burn and desensitize and dehumanize, dehumanize our understanding of other people and bring about this breakdown and brokenness in our lives. And, and, I, and I realize that for some of us, that may not be a major issue. The majority, though, again, I, I just know statistics are, are pretty high on this. The majority of us, perhaps in this room right now, perhaps th- this is a major struggle and issue in your life. Please listen to the words of Jesus on this. It's intense, serious. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. He says, you cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. 
such a great, such a great metaphor, right? Think about this. It's like lust, right? That you, you can't keep it. Like, so if you're walking downtown, and, you, and this, is, this is not, you can't look at someone who's beautiful. Look, the fact of the matter is, there are some people that are absolutely strikingly beautiful. Is it wrong to look at them and think about their beauty? No. It's the second glance, the third stare, in which you begin to imbibe and drink in the beauty, and then begin to think about what you would do if you had them. This is what lust is. It's the... The, the objectifying of another human being for your own personal pleasure. So let's jump back into this. We'll look at this. We'll almost wrap it up. Jesus and sex. So why for Jesus is sex such a big deal? I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, hopefully. Number one, because it has to do with the vision of God. Jesus is concerned about God's vision for what sex and marriage and relationships are all about. So you can think about it this way. Jesus always goes back to page one of the Bible and he begins to say, well, you've heard it said that in the beginning, God made them male and female, husband and wife. So God actually engenders maleness, femaleness and says, this is what the whole idea of marriage is to look like. One man, one woman coming together, uh, creating this relationship. And you can think of it in terms of partnership, two partners, male, and female coming together. Pleasure, the idea that it's good. God describes it as being very good. So how does God think about sex? Well, apparently he says it's very good. So God's onto something here. And then thirdly, procreation, the idea of actually bearing children. In fact, the book of Malachi gives this passage where it talks about God actually cares about uh, the creation of these family units that bear his name. And then when the family breaks down, it begins to break down the relationship of children. And God actually cares about this. He actually has an opinion. He has something to say about this subject matter. So I think Jesus is concerned for the vision of God. Secondly, is that we see that Jesus has this vision for humanity and God's kingdom. So think about how this kind of plays out within this storyline. Uh, Jesus is approached on several occasions and he's asked, hey, what's the greatest uh, command of all of the commands of God? It's like 613 of them. Jesus says to love God. You can summarize it in this way. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. It's what we say for us as a church. Like that's that's who we are as a church. We want to be. We want to embody. That's kind of our vision for us as a community is to create a community of disciples that love God and love one another, and then make Jesus known throughout the world in all that we do. Whether it be just going home as a family, inviting people into our homes for dinner, or going all the way to Tibet or China or. Indonesia or El Salvador or wherever, and then preaching the name of Jesus wherever that we go. So these are the ideas. So there's this vision for humanity in God's kingdom that he is thinking about, no doubt. And he's also realizing that there are things that can come in and corrupt and infect and disrupt what God wants to do. And he says, lust is one of those things that can actually grab a hold of you so much so that you are no longer controlled by the passions of God. You're controlled by your own passions. And Jesus says, you got to be aware of this. Take Heed to those passions that are controlling you, those affections, those emotions that might be good, but they could actually, if they're out of control in your life, they could be like a fire that will bring destruction to you. So we also see this idea that God has an opinion as to how humans can flourish. So what lust does is lust basically says, I have an idea as to how I can flourish using you. You understand? That's what lust is. Lust says, I have a vision for your life that includes me undressing you with my eyes and then ruminating on that. Where you are the center of my pleasure center. 
And you're nothing more than an object for me to savor, to think about, to meditate upon, to lust over. This is what the idea is. And what God is saying, what Jesus is suggesting here is that this is, this is literally upending, subverting everything that has to do with God's good intention for this world. So Jesus is saying, be careful. If lust is the narrative of your life, deal with it. Deal with it harshly, decisively, quickly. So there's a couple of things to think about as well as with this idea, because if we live that way, what we're actually doing is we're setting up, we're erecting a parody kingdom, meaning God's kingdom says, I love all people and I will give myself for everybody upon this planet. I love all people. For God so loved the world, right? John 3, 6, and you all know that. John, God so loves the world that he gives his only son. It's whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting. What lust says, I don't love all people. I love myself, and I want to pleasure myself with all people. It's the exact opposite. It's the parody kingdom. It's an alternate kingdom that God says must come down, and another kingdom take its place. It's what it means to submit our hearts to King Jesus to say, God, I welcome, I invite your will to be done in my life in its entirety. Um, there's a pagan view of sexuality that's pretty prominent, and I would say is sort of the prevailing view within our culture at large today. It basically goes something like this, you know, indulge your, your passions. You even hear phrases like, follow your heart, whatever your desires are, as long as it's in a consensual type of a situation, it's, it's all good. Because two consenting adults coming together, it's, it's okay. And I would suggest... That's not true. I've, I can't tell you how many, quote-unquote, consenting adults I've talked to, particularly the women, who years later, maybe even months later, would say, I consented, but now I regret. I shouldn't have done that. I wish I had not done that. And I feel deep pain. Because I believed a narrative that said, well, consenting adults is Okay. So there's a pagan view, I would say, that says, indulge your passions, follow your heart. And what I would suggest is that this has a very low view of human sexuality. Because really, the reason why it has a low view is that it denies the power of sex. It denies the power. It, it treats sex as just sort of an action or an activity that two consenting adults can simply, quote-unquote, do together, and they go on the rest, rest of their life. All right, any Seinfeld fans here? Anybody? Seinfeld, you can admit it, it's Okay. Oh, good. We love you. Um, there is a whole episode on, on, is it possible to actually have sex and still remain friends? All right? Just straight talk. Right? Address the elephant in the room, because that's what we're doing this morning. And uh, the fact of the matter is, that the, I think at the end of the show, it's like, no, you actually can't. You really actually can't, because the moment you have sex with somebody else, it begins to reshape. We even know this on a neurological level, that, that sex actually, and pornography, reshapes the neurons in your brains. Because you are feeding your brain on a variety of drugs that are being induced within your body that create sense and excitement and exhilaration. And then it becomes addictive. And that's why we keep going back to it. And we also know that what happens is that high is not successful the next time. So we have to go deeper. We have to go longer. So your little five-minute foray into sex then becomes ten minutes. And then... 20 minutes, and then it's not enough to just look at it. You have to actually have an act of sex. This Again, we, we, we know this in culture at large. And what Jesus is saying is, is I, I care about human sexuality because of the vision that I have, God has for his kingdom and human flourishing and people coming together. 
So that's the pagan view. It's a very low view of its power. Then there's a prudish view that I would suggest. And the prudish view, basically, to some degree, have, has been associated, for the most part, with Christianity. And the prudish view is, is abstain from sex. It's really bad. Let's not talk about it. That might have come from your youth pastor, right? When you're like 14 years old, and all the talks in your youth group were like, don't have sex. It's really bad. And, and that's, that's not necessarily a bad word. It's not, it's not a complete word. Because it's painting a picture that sex is bad. And I would suggest that is not Christianity. It's not what the Bible teaches. So I would suggest that this prudish view actually has too low a view because it actually denies the goodness of sex. Pagan, too low a view, denies the power of sex. Prudish view is bad because it denies the goodness of sex. The Christian view comes on through Jesus and says it recognizes both the power of sex to transform, to reshape, but also its goodness in its proper context. But you rip it out of its context and you do with it what you want, what you wish or what culture at large is saying or what your heart is saying. Just enter into it. Do what your heart says do. At some point, it will begin to pull you apart. Unraveling will begin to happen. For some of you, that is perhaps how you would define your life is unraveling. It's that hell that Jesus describes, the feeling of coming undone, coming apart, in which Jesus says he loves you and he wants to help you. And to wrap this up, lastly, we see that this vision for men in the new community and the family, and gosh, I'm, I'm going late, so sorry. You guys, you guys okay? Okay, cool. We're not going to sing, just FYI, Mike, so there we go. Um, I, I feel like I've got to finish this up. So just listen carefully, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, lastly, listen to what Jesus actually says in verse 28 as he addresses the men. Because if you notice, Jesus is regularly referring to the men. If you lust or you sin against your wife, you commit adultery or against another woman, he's specifically referring to men. Why? Now, this is kind of an interesting thing to think about and consider. I think what Jesus is doing is he's addressing specifically in this context men because he's referring to a brand new humanity, a new community, a new family that Jesus is shaping. And what's the role of men in this new community? They're to be protectors, not exploiters. And men, if you are a follower of Jesus, please... Listen to, think about, consider how you think about other women. In the new community, the new humanity that Jesus himself is creating is to be filled with men, godly men figures that don't exploit women, that don't objectify women, that don't pull women apart, that don't simply reduce them to a body part, but sees them as a sister and one who is protected and covered and loved. I think Jesus is casting a vision for what this new humanity could and should look like. So let me wrap it up with this final thought. Jesus and his radical call to action. I'll just say this and then make a couple quick statements and wrap it up. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out for it from you. It's better for your whole body, better for you to lose one member of your body than for your entire body to be cast into this Gehenna. And then he goes on to say, your right foot, so on, your left, your right foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, your right hand. Um, the point that I would make is this is that in this particular context, this is radical, of course, we'd all recognize it. So the question, yes, of course, many of our Western minds immediately go to, is Jesus being literal here? Most scholars probably would say absolutely not, because 
if, if Jesus is actually going literal here, uh, there's one other body part he probably could have like, talked about being cut off, but omits, right? You, you get the idea. Um, so, so what's going on here? I think what Jesus is basically saying is that take this seriously. This is so radical. Take it seriously. Because it's like a fire that will set ablaze in your life and reduce you and through you perhaps reduce many other people. But the opposite is true too. That if it's contained, if Jesus becomes Lord over all things, including sex and sexuality and how you think about it and how you determine it, it could actually transform the way that you think about all things and how you become an agent of hope and help throughout God's new humanity, throughout the kingdom of heaven, throughout what God's doing in this earth right now and in the kingdom to come. In other words, God is committed to making all things new. You know, he never says he's going to make all new things. We tend to think God's going to make all new things. It's not what God's going to do. He's not going to make all new things. He will make all things new, which means he will take things that were once broken and burned out and defiled and crushed and maybe even dead and they will undergo a resurrection, just like the body, Jesus. This is what God is breathing and breaking forth right here, right now, should we choose to allow him in your life as we trust him. Finally, let me read a couple passages and I'll be done. First uh, Corinthians, other passages about the New Testament. Again, the New Testament is filled with unpacking Jesus's ethic on sex and trying to make sense of it and understand it. Uh, New Testament writers like uh, the Apostle Paul uh, had some comments to say. I'll just read these and I'll just leave them for what they are and then I'll wrap it up. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 and 20 says this, flee sexual morality. It's the Greek word porneia. Flee porneia. We get our English word obviously porn from it, but it's this, it's this junk drawer term that includes everything that is not monogamous, male, female, faithful, marriage, anything that happens sexually outside of that covenantal paradigm is what Paul describes as pornam. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of his body, uh, every other sin a person commits is outside of his body. But sexual immorality or a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, uh, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, your body is a gift from God. God loves you. God loves sex. That sounds shocking, but God created it, and it's good in its rightful place. If we submit to any other ethic, other than the ethic that Jesus gives, or if we do not willfully submit to the ethic of Jesus, then we will imbibe other ethics of sex and sexuality, and again, there is no shortage of them, right, uh, and wholesale value in our culture at large, and we will by nature think about them and be shaped by them. Next slide. There we go. First Thessalonians 4, 3-5, he says this, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, or God transforming you, reshaping you. He says that you would abstain from porneia, sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his, his body in holiness and honor, not in its passion of lust, like the Gentiles do not, we, who do not know God. So Paul's 
charges is to flee this porneia, run from it. If you find yourself in these places, run from it, see it as the need. And what we want to finish on, and what I want to pray for you for as we wrap up, is I realize for many of us, this is the big issue of our lives. And I want to say one other thing. This is not, I want to make sure I'm very clearly understood, this is not the unpardonable sin. Your sexual brokenness, your sexual deviancy, your sexual confusion, no matter where it is, no matter where it stands on that scale, is not the unpardonable sin. You are loved by Jesus. He wants to help us. He wants to bring healing to deep places in our heart that may have been wounded and broken and disrupted and have left violated. Jesus wants to heal us. But we have to act. We have to act decisively. We have to think through this. We have to take decisive action in response to the love that God offers us. So, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what types of circumstances are going on in your life, but I'm going to finish. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for us all to stand, and I'll pray over us. In fact, you know what? I realize it's a little bit late. Mike, can you, would you be cool to play just one song? Is that cool? Are you guys okay with that? If you need to leave, just, that's fine. You can bail. No, you can just all stand. Go ahead. Um, so if you need to leave, if you need to go pick up your kids, which if you do have kids, you, you may want to go pick them up because... They're probably freaking out now. Um, you're more than welcome to bring them back in here. But I, I just want to pray over us, and we'll just finish with a song of closing to think about, to consider, to worship God. But I want to pray for all of us and pray for our community that as we go to the table, as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, that we, we are reminded of the depth of God's love that he has for us. That he's come to heal us, not shame not abandon, not neglect, not mock, to bring healing. So God, right now we come to you with uh, open arms. We just say that we need you. We love you. Jesus, you know the hearts and the condition and the place and the hurting of every single person here. And we just invite you, Jesus, into those deep places to remake us, to reshape us. God, those of us that may have been wrestling through this or trying to make sense of a sexual ethic that we have that has defiled and deceived us and led us down a path of a lot of hurt and pain. Uh, Jesus, we want to submit our hearts afresh and anew to you uh, to become people that are reshaped by the good news, that are reshaped by Jesus. So we submit our hearts afresh to you right now. We ask that you make us whole. We worship you. We love you.